You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, we just got off the phone with Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi to talk about how this first week of Oahu Safe Access is playing out. It comes as the lines are being blurred over the restrictions as critics of vaccine mandates are becoming more vocal and more aggressive. The Aloha Freedom Coalition plans a march in Waikiki tomorrow, and members have confronted the mayor recently over their displeasure. Mayor Blangiardi underscores we are taking these measures to avoid another shutdown. Well, well, first of all, the anti-vax group, while they've protested here, and I read this morning that they have a planned march again in Waikiki, has been really not about safe access to Oahu. It really has been about the whole vaccination and why we're not using some kind of other uh, medicines in our hospitals and the fact that we issued a vaccine mandate. So let me just talk briefly about Safe Access Oahu, because that was a strategy that was really well thought out in the best interest of having people feel safe. You know, what we did, put it really candidly, I mean, I just got off a phone call this morning with Roundtable with all the hotel operators talking about the precipitous decline in tourism since the governor made his announcement some 25 days ago. I mean, the amount of cancellations and everything else that's impacted them is really something. And when you consider that really tourism has not played into it all, safe travels work, anything that's happening, especially during this Delta surge. In fact, since the pandemic began, there's probably been, as far as tourism, maybe one and a half percent of all cases were tourists that went to our local hospitals and none required hospitalization. So, you know, it wasn't the tourists causing it, it was of our own doing. And so we've tried to take into our own hands, if you will, strategies that would keep us from locking down. And keeping in mind, we've had now some 74, 75,000 cases. I haven't seen the latest from the DOH, but it's about that as far as numbers of cases. And more than half of those have been in the last 60 days. In fact, a higher percentage than that in the last 30 days especially. And what that brought with it, some 25,000 cases, if you will, in just the last 30 days, was unprecedented pressure on our hospitals and resources. And so we needed to do something short of the state just completely locking down to try to take control of the situation. And so our decision-making really shifted towards the metric of our hospitals. You know, in the beginning, when they first put the tier structure into place back in September of 2020, before we even came into office, it was all about case counts at that time, positivity rates. Hospitals were in there as a metric, but the hospitals were not being pressured. That evolved over time. We got into office in January and moved nicely through the tiers. That, that evolved somewhere around May to June in talking about vaccination levels. And it was a real shift. And even though we had moved into tier four, we were looking at the vaccinations. And I can remember very clearly hoping on July 1st that the governor was going to lift all restrictions. Instead, they came out and held back and said July 8th they would make an announcement. And what they did was they constructed a Tier 5 of the Department of Health, which was tied to vaccinations, and they made the statement, so perhaps you remember, the audience remembers, that at 65%, and we were just very close to 60% at that time, at 65% they would drop a certain number of restrictions that had been in place, and once we got to 70, they would drop all restrictions. And we looked like we were gonna just headed, coming out of the tunnel, you could see the daylight. It looked like we were there and, you know, it would just be a matter of time. And then the Delta variant rose its head and, and got very aggressive. And we saw case counts, you know, grow exponentially. But with those case counts also came hospitalizations, incredible unprecedented pressure on our ICUs. And, and for that matter, even created, even a couple of weeks ago, a very real scare in our oxygen supply. And behind all of that, which many people don't talk about, and a real concern of mine, in fact, later on this morning, I'm going to be addressing healthcare workers, was the unprecedented pressure on our healthcare workers, literally working around the clock and working at capacity. Our hospitals were at capacity. They have a capability of going beyond capacity, which they were. I think uh, Ray Vera told me at Hawaii Pacific Health, they were at 125% capacity, and they're built for that, but that has a lot of strain. So for the first time in the pandemic, they requested FEMA healthcare workers, and we were fortunate to get, and we now have had over 600 of them. And it wasn't for that helping spell the incredible pressure that our healthcare workers were under. I'm not so sure what would have happened. So all of that said, our decision making has been designed to try to keep our economy open, at the same time make people feel safe. So it started with our own employees and on mandatory vaccination policy. We then went to 28 day which we're probably going to extend. 
We haven't finalized it with the governor. We're asking for only two weeks, but we canceled large gatherings. And just so you know, that didn't happen without consequence. We had 194 events scheduled for that 28-day period, which began, I believe, on August 18th, or 25th, rather, some of which, 26 of which were over 1,000 people. These were all plans that were submitted to the city. People had their mitigation plans, the protocols or whatever. They were all approved and accepted. We canceled that, and that came with great pain and economic consequence, but we did it in listening to the DOH and what their primary concern was was with respect to communal spread. Now, this is the same time that the governor was on national television telling people not to come to Hawaii. We're trying to keep the local economy open. And so then that led to, unfortunately, in the middle of all that, UH football and Wahimi volleyball, you know, got told no attendance. And, you know, University of Hawaii was the only Division I football program in the country, in the country, that didn't have spectators, and they won't this week as well. So that's in the spirit of trying to really safeguard our our vulnerable, if you will, island community. And then that led to, okay, what else can we possibly do? And if you look at the cluster reports, which we get weekly, you know, you, I can tell you right now, restaurants and bars and gyms to some level, but restaurants primarily are the second highest group of cluster reports in cases next to our correctional facilities. We don't have any say in the correctional facilities, but then we stepped in and we worked closely with the Restaurant Association. We wanted to learn from the cities that had done similar things. San Francisco, New Orleans, New York City, global, really great cities, even Guam, on what they did with vaccination passports, saw what they had done wrong, saw what we could do right. In the spirit of keeping people safe, we announced this program in conjunction with the Restaurant Association and our subsequent conversations to try to keep us open, allow people to go on with their lives as normal. We didn't overreach. We didn't get into supermarkets or retail locations or so many other things. We just wanted to be as specific as we could in allowing our people to live normal lives, to require, you know, we will require vaccination, proof of vaccination, so other people who go there would feel safe. And so now in the midst of all of that, these people that are against the vaccine for one reason or another, you know, I don't know how large the group is going to be, but I can tell you it's a highly charged group and that's their position. And hopefully they can go about their protest, which they have a right to do in a civil manner. Some of it to date has not quite been that way. I don't fully understand, quite honestly, it baffles me why they are so adamant about this, but I, I will say this to you. 88% of our state population that is eligible to be vaccinated as of today has initiated one vaccine. The way it is right now is 66.1% of the state is fully vaccinated. 74.6% of the state has initiated the vaccine. But of those eligible, because this excludes the 203,000 kids, we have 203,000 kids who are not yet eligible, and we have 119,000 children aged 5 to 11 whom would be eligible for vaccines if the FDA approves vaccinations sometime perhaps before the end of October. But when you back out that 203,000 number, so you just look at the people who could actually get a vaccination, we're at 88%. That is tremendous community compliance. I think that's a statement from the majority about what matters to them. And that's right now from a governing standpoint. The majority in this case is saying, they don't like this disease anymore, anybody else. They're doing whatever they can personally. I, I'm still amazed how many people I see wearing masks outdoors when they don't have to, but they are, you know, in all the other efforts they're making, but showing up and getting vaccinated. I can tell you in the last 10 days or so, we invested over $16 million just in testing. And we've expanded our testing all around the island, especially on the west side where we really need to have additional help because the concerns of people getting sick and then wanting to find out and be tested free now, which is what we're doing. So, look, I know this is a vocal minority, but there are a lot of people here, really, really good people, who don't want to die, who don't want to get sick, are trying to protect themselves and trying to protect their families, and that's who we're paying attention to, and we're doing everything we can to create safe workplaces and safe outings for people to go to so they'll feel good and safe, hopefully, about what they're doing. But that vocal minority. There are some who are just openly defying government officials. We saw the Department of Health close down one downtown establishment because they were re refusing to comply. You know, I don't know if this group that's protesting on Saturday got their permits. 
to March. I think people are getting uncomfortable watching this group grow in numbers and become more vocal or more aggressive, maybe is the word. Catherine, I'm not going to hide it. It's very unsettling, especially given what's at stake. You know, today the deaths were reported. We lost 15 people. Yesterday, 23 people died in just the last two days. Uh, You know, and I think that's heightened the testing and the people who decided to go out and get vaccines. This is, we are just below 700 deaths here. And a lot of that has escalated in just the last two months. And I don't know how these people could become more defiant in the face of something that is very real and very threatening to so many people. I just don't understand it. You know, in 43 years in media, Catherine, having done a lot of news research in a lot of different communities, but 30 of those years here in Hawaii, we used to test over and over again top-of-mind concerns. I'm telling you, family safe is a primal driver in people. It's the reason why people watch news. They want to know if they're going to be threatened. It's a concern. We've seen it manifest itself in the past through natural disasters, whether they were tsunamis or hurricanes or other things. This has been a different enemy, if you will, to deal with. But people in their primal need to feel safe, keep their families safe, is that's what we're addressing. And that is as real and as human as it gets. That was Mayor Rick Blangiardi talking to us this morning about the rollout of the Safe Access Program and the opposition to the vaccine mandates, uh, which has become more aggressive and vocal uh, during this health and economic crisis. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Today happens to be Constitution Day, marking the signing of the U.S. Constitution, but it made us think about Hawaii's Constitution. Enacted by Kamehameha III in 1840, it's considered to be one of the most significant political documents in our island's history. It had an effect on the structure of Hawaii, uh, Hawaii society and transformed Hawaii's government from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. The document did it by outlining a separation of powers between three distinct branches of government. Executive power was distributed amongst the king, the kuhina nui, which is similar to a prime minister, and a small group of governors. The bicameral legislative branch was composed of a house of nobles and a house of representatives. And the third branch was a judiciary system complete with a Supreme Court. The Constitution was ratified in 1840, but today we want to know, what was the opening line of Hawaii's first Constitution? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 on the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. be a startling sight. Human waste left at the doorsteps in downtown Chinatown. We have long heard the calls for more public toilets, particularly in Chinatown. And this week, HPR's Noe Tanigawa explored the Lua options in other cities. She joins us now. Hey, it's something that actually could get people excited about Chinatown. I mean, we just heard a few minutes ago the mayor's concerns about COVID everywhere. They've been folding that into their daily work there in Chinatown at the Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center. I went out, as you said, with the wound care team just last week. 
And think about it, wound care. It's so inspiring to watch these professionals at work, Catherine, really, their touch, their words. I mean, and they're dealing with um, one guy was sitting on a card on cardboard on the ground in Ala Park, had an angry, swollen, open wound on his shin. The skin was just curling away. And when they left, he had a clean white bandage just wrapped around both loins. I mean... And, you know, Anthony is a former utility exec. He's wheelchair-bound. He lives in front of Monica Market. Nurse team went up, changed his diaper. Four of them did it quick, respectful, right there on the street. I mean, they they also take care of bus passes. They get them IDs. They care, take care of tickets. And they dispense sanitizing supplies and masks. And Dr. Wang says they have been keeping up with those COVID protocols on the street. Most of our patients down here have already been vaccinated since um, January, February. Really? The people we talked to? Yeah, they all got vaccinated by a partnership between us and Dara, uh, the ED of Project Vision. Yes, we adore her. She's fantastic. So they've been closing the bathroom too, so that's been really challenging. I think it's locked again today. So that's been extra extra stressful for our folks. Nowhere to wash, nowhere to go to the bathroom. Where do you think they've been going to the bathroom? Oh, on the streets. Yeah, there's nowhere to go to the bathroom. Then, you know, they are at risk of getting cited for public urination and things like that. So it really sets up this cycle of, you know, constant stress. Do you think that public restrooms would be used if they were available? Yes, I do. I know they would be heavily used. You know, the, the issue always is, and it's, it's a well-validated concern, right, is what else happens in the bathrooms. But unfortunately, we're going to constantly have substance use issues down here. So it's either in a bathroom in public spaces or it's out on the street. That becomes the difficult dilemma, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of cities have struggled with this one. And you've seen some successes yourself, right, mm-hmm. Catherine? You've traveled? Yes, yes. You've seen lots of pu- public toilets out there and that, that are automatically sanitized after each use. It, it's amazing what the technology can offer. Yeah, there have been big mistakes made, too. I mean, in Seattle, they made them a little too comfy, a little too roomy, a little too private. But <laughs> what happened was in Seattle, uh, let's just look at one system that's working. Evan Madden's a sales manager. Um, His family owns a company that makes the Portland Lou. And, you know, they looked at what Seattle went through with uh, theirs, and they decided to really take care of it. And I thought, you know, how did how did people rise up in your community to demand public toilets? How did you get it done? As so often happens, you as a social observer, Catherine, know one person had to put their shoulder behind it. In this case, it was Carol McCreary. She created an organization called Public Hygiene Let's Us Stay Human, Flush. And (laughs) she started getting with all the city people. The city of Portland jumped in. The departments had to all buy into the whole thing to get this project to work. And what they came up with uh, is has been called, you know, pretty... (laughs) uninviting, let's say. They've got blue lights on the inside so no one can see their own veins to shoot up. They've got anti-graffiti coating out there. Importantly, if you look at it, the top and the bottom have louvers. So you can see through and in at all times. And you're very, very close to everybody passing by. Uh, It is ADA compliant. The weak points, according to Evan, are are just the door and the, you know, handles on the flush. But otherwise, it's just kind of like he calls it point, uh, prison proof. They cost about $120,000 each, uh, $1,000 a month maintenance. So it, it's been doable for Portland. But, you know, the image that sticks with me after we finish talking, Catherine, is of Portland itself. I mean, that's a city so many of us have connections to. I asked Evan Madden about the rollout of the Portland Lou, their initial problem. So our problem area was in the Chinatown part of Portland. Why was that problem there? Do you have any idea? What was the problem there? Just not enough facilities access to, you know, 24-7, 365. If you're not able to purchase something to use the restroom, you're really locked out of a lot of options. And that really is the problem because everyone's health degrades once you encounter human waste and um, feces throughout city streets. If you haven't been to Portland recently, we're going through a huge crisis in just cleanliness. Well, I mean, as I was looking up Portland Lou, I run into Portland looks like hell and other, you know, hashtags, yeah. I'm afraid. It really started at the beginning of the pandemic. I can't say what the initial factor was that started it all, but the crime, the vandalism, the trash and the homelessness has close to quadrupled since March and the start of the pandemic. I don't know. I love the city. I'm born and raised here, so this is where I'm from. We used to be a small, sleepy town growing up, and now it's really grown into a, a big destination. And then after that, now it's transitioned into really um, really a sad place that it's, it's not 
what it used to be. Mahalo, Evan, for that portrait of Portland. Yes. I mean, we are not going there, Catherine. Well, I haven't been there in a long time, so it's very disheartening to well, hear. Well, I'm saying we're not going there uh, as a city. Mm-hmm. And part of what could keep us from going there would be some public toilets. Yeah, you know, it is startling because I have seen people defecate uh, and urinate in the streets. And Me it's too. it's stunning. It's just like, whoa. So, yeah, uh, I know the city has got some bathrooms in that area, but as you mentioned, they're not all, always open. Yes. And that's the problem. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thanks we so all much. Have it. Thanks so much, Noe. We have been chatting with HBR's Noe Tanigawa about public toilets in use in Portland. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats Reality Check today is about drones in the skies, not the consumer-grade devices, but military-grade, the big ones. Kevin Nodell covers military issues for Civil Beat and joins us now. Good morning. Glad to be here. Yeah, so tell us, so the military is uh, just launching uh, some new exercises this week. Right. Um, It began... um, it began actually September 8th, ah, okay. um, and the idea is that uh, they were going to fly um, Reaper um, Reaper hunter-killer drones from the U.S. mainland to Hawaii for the first time, which I learned today they have successfully done. They brought about two of them on a trans-Pacific flight um, flying here. And so these are big, I guess, aircraft, but they're, oh, how would you say it? Maybe not, not manned or not unmanned, but they're remotely controlled. Yeah, well, they're they're tech, they're referred to as unmanned unmanned uh, aerial vehicles, but they yeah they are controlled remotely by a pilot. Uh, it's a misnomer that they're they're robotic, but they're not automated. They're not AI powered. A human being does uh, all the work, even if they're not there. And they are, yes, uh, you see pictures of them sometimes, and you get the idea. And maybe if you've seen little consumer drones, that these are little, but uh, they're not. They're they have a six they have a sixty six foot wingspan. Uh, they weigh close to 5,000 pounds, and they have a payload of Hellfire missiles. And these drones, you, the, dr- the use of the drones is, is uh, coming because, what, the Marines uh, are pulling back on the attack helicopters here in the islands? Well, it's it's because of that and also just a, a more general restructuring of their force and kind of how they envision what their role is going to be in the future. Um, yeah, they're... These drones are here for practice, but long term, I think by about 2023, uh, the Marine Corps is expected to get uh, six of these new drones that will be stationed out here in Hawaii permanently. Now, uh, you know, just before the show, I happened to see that there was uh, news out of the Pentagon that I think they'd use one of these drones in Afghanistan. And um, unfortunately, I think it killed civilians instead of the targets that they were after. Yeah, that's correct. Um, that that was in response to um, the um, the bombing that killed uh, about thirteen American service members and over a hundred civilians during the uh, the evacuation effort. Um, and and the history of drones, I think, has been kind of controversial. They've been involved in a lot of these sort of secretive, targeted killing programs that the military and the CIA has been running. In Afghanistan and also neighboring Pakistan and and kind of around the globe. Um, ultimately, you know, like I said, though it, it's a human makes that decision. Um, when when we look at kind of what happened there, um, I, I don't think that's a problem that's unique to drones necessarily. Um, had it been a jet or anyone else who shot it, um, the the issue mostly was the intelligence failure and the failure to properly identify targets and understand what was going on on the ground. And, you know, we are seeing uh, more uh, threats uh, in the Pacific region. You know, the Pentagon is beefing things up because they're concerned about what's happening with China. Uh, So I imagine we're going to see more exercises in the future uh, with these drones. Very likely. Um, It's definitely something that they're looking at. Um, You you mentioned the helicopters that were leaving. These these drones, um, they're able to be refueled in the air. Um, they're able to move from island to island. And I know that there is an interest in implementing them into probably maybe as early as uh, next year. Okay. And I don't know. I haven't yet seen them in the sky. Have you? 
Not yet. And and so but, the um, the exercises they they run till when? This month till next month? Till about uh, yeah, through August 8th uh, they will be doing things with them on the ground and in the air. So y- we may be seeing them. Okay, all right. Well, something new in the skies to watch out for, and uh, we will probably be seeing more of them. But thank you so much for your story. Thank you. We have been talking with reporter Kevin Nodell. He covers military issues for Honolulu Civil Beat. To read his stories, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hanahauoli School with an informational form now available online for the 2022-23 school year. Learn more about the application process and tours at hanahauoli.org slash informational form. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Cy Montgomery, author of Becoming a Good Creature and The Hummingbird's Gift. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about connecting with the many animals in my life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. love children and want to make a difference? Well, that's the question Child and Family Service is asking Hawaii Island residents as it steps up efforts to recruit foster parents. The nonprofit says there's an urgent need for foster families on the Big Island. The conversations Russell Subiona was curious about the reason behind the need. He contacted Aaron Axton Riggs, the clinical supervisor for CFS's Transitional Family Homes Program in Hilo, to learn more. Currently, we don't have enough foster parents to meet the need that we're seeing, not only in our program, but statewide. The reality is that there are more foster children than foster homes. I guess I should say there are more children in foster care than foster homes. And even, you know, from my personal experience working in this field, I know for a fact that there are always children waiting for homes that can meet their needs. And For children in foster care, it's often an uphill battle. According to national statistics, only about 50% of foster youth graduate high school. Very few graduate college. 25% of foster youth will be homeless within two years. So not only do we need more families, but we really need families who are committed to providing that stability and support that all children need. And the number of children in foster care is just, it's growing in Hawaii and across the United States. So there there is an urgent need for more families and committed families. How has the pandemic and pandemic restrictions impacted foster parents and the availability of foster parents? Our experience is that we aren't getting as many calls for families that are interested. You know, many families understand, understandably feel a little bit nervous about having kids come into their home during the pandemic. And with kids kind of having to do virtual school right now, right. more kids are back in school, but still, you know, a lot of kids are in and out, right? Sometimes they're having to do virtual schooling. Sometimes they're back in school. And it's difficult for some families to be able to provide the supervision that these kids need. So we we do need more families. The recruitment has slowed down over the pandemic, and we need more families. Why are foster parents so important? What kind of impacts have you seen them have on children going through a family transition? One impact that we can have through our program is that, you know, we're able to keep children in their communities or near their communities while they receive the treatment that they need. So they can, you know, stay near their homes, hopefully stay near near their families, 
attend their schools, participate in community activities um, while still receiving the intensive treatment that some of these children may need. You know, also we have children from many different backgrounds with a variety of needs. Most of them have experienced significant trauma. So it's really an opportunity for foster families to provide that safe and supportive home that these children may have never had in the past. Foster families provide an environment where children know their physical and emotional needs are going to be met no matter what. And that helps the children focus on developing those healthier patterns. Foster families can also model and teach what healthy functional relationships can look like. And just like it's a, they provide an environment where children can learn and grow and make mistakes without judgment. I like to say it's an environment where children can be children and maybe they haven't had that in their past. How does the process work? What does child and family service look for in potential foster parents? We're open to all kinds of family structures, whether it's single adults or couples with kids, couples without kids, same-sex couples. Really, ultimately, we're, we're looking for individuals and families that are open to welcome a child into their home and give that support, that stability that the child may need. The process, so I would say, give us a call. You know, we, we're here to talk story. We're here to answer questions, address any concerns you may have. And from there, some basic background checks. There's some basic requirements for the home. Um, one of the benefits with our program is that we provide um, intensive training beforehand. So you, uh, all foster parents coming through our program are required to complete 30 hours of training. And this training has been specifically developed for foster parents who are serving this population of, of children who have experienced trauma, their backgrounds. I do want to say that, you know, of course we want to grow our program, but, uh, and bring in great families to support the children in our program but there are so many agencies, so many great agencies across the state that also need foster parents. And our ultimate goal is to um, connect people with the best opportunity for them in the community to, to serve the community. So again, like call us, ask questions, and we can hopefully, you know, find the best option for you that's available. Some other things I can say about our program that makes it unique, I guess, in some ways is that, you know, we we offer extensive support. So there is a therapist and a life skills specialist assigned to every child that comes into the home. And there's a staff member available to the foster parents 24-7. So anything that comes up, any questions there may be, there's always someone that you can reach out to. And we offer ongoing monthly trainings on topics that are relevant to caring for children in foster care. Does a foster parent need to have previous parenting experience or is it possible for someone who is either single or or a couple who have never had kids? Is it possible for them to be a foster parent as well? Great question. You do not need to have previous parenting experience. We do have foster parents who don't have their own kids. So, you know, we believe that through our training and through the support that we provide, that we can we can support anybody to be, be a great foster parent. Do you have a favorite story of a foster family? Do you have one that kind of illustrates the good that can come out of a foster parent situation? Yeah. You know, without getting into too many details, we've had situations where the child and their biological family were facing real difficulty, real challenges that led to the child being removed from their biological family and coming into our program for a short period of time. And we were able to work with the child helping them and also with the biological family to help them come through those barriers, those difficulties they were facing. And the the foster family played a crucial, crucial role in that because they were helping the child learn 
how to function in a family setting, um, how to, you know, respond to challenges or disagreements once they return home. And we were able to bring the child back to their biological family. That That's the ideal, right? Build up both the child and the family and reunite families. That's our ultimate goal. That was Child and Family Service Aaron Axton Riggs talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on becoming a foster parent, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Today we asked about the Kingdom of Hawaii's first constitution, enacted by Kamehameha III on October 8, 1840. The constitution was a point of transition for Hawaii. Under the provisions of the document, the government was organized from an absolute into a constitutional monarchy with a separation of its powers among three distinct branches. The executive branch was headed by the king. The Kuhina Nui, similar to a modern-day prime minister and a small group of governors. The legislative branch was subdivided into a House of Nobles and an elected House of Representatives. The third branch was the judiciary that included a full-fledged Supreme Court. For a backyard quiz today, we asked you to look back to tell us the opening line to Hawaii's first constitution of 1840. The answer, God hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the earth in unity and blessedness. And that was today's quiz. We had no winners today. But if you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The Great Wave off Kanagawa returns as the final installation in the exhibition Hokusai's Mount Fuji from September 23rd to October 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. On the next Fresh Air, actress Jean Smart. She's nominated for Emmys for her leading performance in Hacks and for her supporting role in Mayor of East Town. Also, we remember music impresario George Ween, who created the Newport Jazz Festival in 1954, the Newport Folk Festival in 1959, and the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. He died Monday at the age of 95. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Are you a football fan? Ever wonder about the origins of hut, hut? You know, the call, the signal to start a football play like this. Green 18! Green 19! Hut! Green 3? Yeah, it's five. Blue 58! Blue 58! Well, while the term hut is a throwback to the military's attend hut, today we learn about hut 808. It's a program underway in a couple of Hawaii high schools. We talked to Nathan Murata about it. He's the dean of the College of Education at the University of Hawaii. He notes that today happens to be a Brain Concussion Awareness Day. We're very excited about what we call the uh, HUT 808 project. And the HUT 808 project is essentially a helmetless tackling technique where we try to take the head out of the game. In other words, take a person when they're tackling or blocking to remove their heads from any kind of contact as, as much as possible. I know it's not always easy, but we try to make it safer. Um, and we're doing intervention with some schools whereby they go through a training and they do some skills that help them to, you know, essentially protect their heads, if you will. So who's involved in this? You mean people, the, the researchers or the schools? The schools. Uh, right now we have St. Louis is, that's involved, uh, uh, Roosevelt, and Pac-5. Uh, excuse me, Roosevelt and Kalani. Pac-5 was with us last year. This year, just St. Louis, Roosevelt, and Kalani. So tell us, what's it, what exactly is involved? All sites, they have these helmets that we the project purchased for them. And in the, in the football helmets, there are sensors that monitor various head impacts on various parts of the helmet, in the front, the back, the side, the top. And what that does is just we have a grad assistant on the sideline or at the practice monitoring each helmet contact or impact, if you will, 
on this on this device that collects everyone's head impact. And then we, we download that information, and then we can monitor on a daily basis how many head impacts this player experienced at practice and even at games. So we, we monitor that at every practice. Uh, and it's these specially designed sensors in the helmets that we purchase for all the schools. So are those expensive? I mean, where do we get the uh, yeah, money? Yeah, it's about $500 a pop for each helmet. So, you know, we, we've been very supported from the the GOG Foundation to help us put this what together. What is GOG? The Gary O'Gallagher Foundation. Ah, yes. He was a big supporter big, uh, of big, this cause. That's correct. And so, uh, so we work closely with UMass Lowell in this, in this endeavor. So it's not only a University of Hawaii project, it's UMass is involved. So we got helmets that monitor the impacts. So then now what we're doing is with St. Louis and Kalani, for example, they're in what is called intervention. And so the players go through this structured uh, drill sets, if you will, that starts from a very stationary position to static position to a dynamic position to a functional. So in other words, from the very beginning, it's very, you know, just you you start off like on a on all fours and just hit a bag, and then then you stand up and you start hitting the bag, uh, and then you start to become more lateral movement, and then we start to do um, more of the um, what is that called the body body contact kind of mm-hmm. thing. So so it's kind of like a functional phase that we we approach tackling all this time with a point of keeping the head to to the side. There's a role in, that's involved in it to lessen the impact as much as possible. Because we're in, in intervention now, the research in this for this HUT program, because it came out of the University of New Hampshire, it has shown to effectively reduce the number of head impacts from college and some high school players. So what we're trying to do here is replicate some of that with the entire team. And that's the reason why all the players that are involved in this project can be, you know, most of them are, and they, it doesn't matter what position they're playing. And they, they get an opportunity to uh, experience this, whether or not they're actually involved in tackling and, and all. They, they, get, they go through the entire intervention phase. Now, we're still in the intervention phase, so we haven't really been able to collect a whole lot of data in a sense that, for example, Kalani is they're still on pause. They're not able to practice until later on this month. St. Louis had some issues with COVID, and they weren't able to play for the past couple of weeks. So we've been struggling with some of those challenges to, to monitor not only the intervention, but to collect the data as frequently as we want to. Well, you mentioned that uh, last year you had PAC-5 involved. Yes. So how long has this program been underway? This is our third year, but last year was a, last year was a total wash because everything was, all the football seasons were canceled last year mm-hmm. because of covid and so, so this year, so we kind of started up again this year, and so we're in our third year with the possibility of extending for one more year. Explain UMass's part in all of this. Okay, UMass is the, the, actually the, um, the main institution that uh, received funding from the foundation, and we're actually a co-subaward that work closely with UMass. But we're the, we're the main people that are directly involved in the research. Here in Hawaii, so my colleagues on, at UMass are still on the East Coast, and we meet weekly. But we were the ones that are here on a day-to-day basis, monitoring our grad students to do the work at the various schools. Okay, so yeah. it's basically college students helping to collect the data yep. of mm-hmm. the high school athletes. Correct. Yep. Are there any plans to use this uh, in the university athletes, the football players? Um, at this point, no, we have not uh, looked at the university. I know the university does do their baseline testing and all that for uh, concussions. So we're not, we, we wanted to focus at the high school level because, you know, primarily we, we feel that, uh, heck, if we could go to the youth level, that would even be better. But the high schools have trainers and um, they seem to be, it's, it's, a, it's an important space to try to look at some of these tackling techniques and all to, to make the game safer. So by the time they get to the college level, they have so many, so many um, health care providers. They've got doctors on staff. They've got trainers. They've got some resources to do different things. 
So whereas in the high schools, they may not have that opportunity to have some of the resources that it may take to try to get monitoring these kinds of concussion-related incidences. So basically, you've got funding for another year. I don't know, any plans to expand if you can get additional funding? What I would love to do is to try to obtain more funding, and not necessarily from our current funding source, but from other funding sources to to expand. And, and then to the most important thing that we have to do now is to report our findings, you know, to the professional literature, to, to the coaches, to others, to really showcase and document that there there is that possibility if you begin to teach players to tackle a certain way uh, that may increase their ability to maintain a more safer playing environment that way and then to minimize any kind of long-term negative effects on any kind of head impacts that can be detrimental down the road you know so so I think uh, that's what we're trying to do you know is to just get our ability to make it safer, to have them execute proper technique to tackle safely so that they don't get injured and they, they don't have long-term effects of any kind of head injury in the future. So many of our young players have done well uh, and played pro. You know, you, you do worry for Marcus Mariota. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, we saw, you know, Colt Brennan, you know, he yes. suffered a brain injury. Correct. And, oh, my gosh, you know, yes. everybody's hearts just went out to that family. You know, right. he's just been right. through a lot. Right. So you worry about our young people, you know, as yep. they get into put in situations where they're going to receive the brunt of the tackles. And, and not only the, the players, too, but then this project, what we're hoping to do is also change or to have the coaches realize that their techniques, the influence that they have on their players is a big part of it. And so, so sometimes for coaches to then to rethink the way they do tackling techniques and drills, etc., I think is another part of this bigger piece of this, this concussion studies that we're doing, and to also include the parents, because parents have to sign off on these kids participating. But then, you know, parents can also recognize if their child has a, a head injury and to report it to the necessary health care providers or to their school so that they can, that, so that that can be done and addressed, you know, uh, in a timely fashion. Right, because you want people to recognize uh, what a brain injury looks yes. like, what are the symptoms early yes. on. Yes, and sometimes the kids don't want to say because they, they want to play. Mm. And, uh, you know, and so we, we deal with that all the time. Um, but we're hopeful that uh, we continue to get the messaging out that, that you can still play as long as you play it. You can do it safely, um, you know, and, and not, you know, maybe not use your head as a weapon to tackle. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's what we're trying to, the message, the message that we're trying to get. Yeah, you've only got one brain. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly true. You take you care know, of it. You got to take, and no matter you know, the and the helmet itself is not there to protect any for any kind of concussions. The helmet that they're wearing is only there to protect you from a skull fracture. So no matter how high end your helmet might be, you know your brain is still banging around in there despite the helmet, but it will protect you from a skull fracture. But the mo- the monitoring system that we have is very helpful so that we can tell where the impacts are on the kids based on each individual player. Are we the only program that's doing high school? At this, at this point, you know, we're, we're the only ones that are doing it at the high school for the entire team. You know, because to, to get a helmet with a sensor on, it's rather costly for a high school program. So we may be the only state that's doing it for an entire football team. Does Massachusetts have any high schoolers? Involved in that? Yeah, they have some. And New, New Hampshire had a few. I think for us, it's the entire team that's involved. Whereas right. in other places, it was mainly you know select positions. Right, quarterback or yeah, or the linemen or the linebackers mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay. So it was only targeted for certain positions. Whereas for us here, it doesn't matter what position you're playing. We want you to be part of the project. And so you know, you could be the kicker, but you can still go through the tackling techniques. I was totally against having just only position players because, as, you know, as a parent, with my, if I had a child playing, I'd want my, my child to be participating in this project because you, you get to learn how to tackle correctly. And so it was, you know, we had to, we had to outfit the entire team unless the ch- students elected not to participate. This area of, of head injuries and concussions is so important for everyone to understand. And we really are 
you know, trying to get down to even the youth level to, you know, emphasize the importance of head, head safety, head injuries, reporting. And in fact, we even try to design curriculum to be sent to schools so that kids in their health ed classes can learn about head injuries and things of that nature. So that's what our, our program does here at the college to try to educate as many people as we can. And now you know about HUT 808 and efforts to raise awareness about brain injury. And that does it for us on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we talk the future of coffee. Worried about your next cup of joe? Maybe you should. Call our talkback line. That's 808-792-8217. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Sobiono, and Lillian Song. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. And our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.